Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, I'm Daniel. Welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. This episode is a little bit different. We were joined by Tom Watson, who some of you may know was the deputy leader of the Labour Party before standing down as an MP in the last general election in the UK. But this interview wasn't just about politics or about the Labour Party. It was about his new book, which is Downsizing, How I Lost 8 Stone, Reversed My Diabetes and Regained My Health. So it's a fascinating story of how Tom managed to basically transform his life and his lifestyle in terms of losing a huge amount of weight at the end of his political career. And we also focused on recent developments in the Labour Party, Labour's loss of the general election and the forthcoming leadership contest that's still to follow. Tom was interviewed in this podcast by Roz Irwin of The Sunday Times. And we hope you enjoy listening to this week's episode. Hello, I'm Ros Irwin, a journalist at the Sunday Times, and welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Tom Watson, the former deputy leader of the Labour Party. Welcome. Thanks, Ros. Good to speak to you. You start the book getting self, uh, getting semi-diagnosed uh, with type 2 diabetes at a Christmas party, which was back in December 2012. I wanted you first to tell that story and what it felt like at the time. Well, I'd gone to a pub uh, where a former colleague of mine who was actually a civil servant who worked for Gordon Brown, and she'd sort of returned from America, invited a wide network to come and have a drink with her for Christmas. And I met Sunil, who was the partner of a work colleague and he very gently carefully diplomatically suggested that i go for a blood test with my gp because he thought i might be diabetic to which i was kind of like slightly stunned and i asked him why he thought that might be the case and he said i've got the telltale signs which he he was basically saying i got a really big saggy diabetic looking belly and I was looking a bit clammy and a bit sweaty. And he, and he did it so gently and kindly. But even then, it was a real shock. But he was right. I, I had got type 2 diabetes. And when I reflect on it, there was no surprise in that. And had I been more self-aware and not in denial, I should probably have realised that about myself. You say in the book that you were at that party with sort of a pork pie in one hand and a Guinness in the other. What was your diet actually like at the time? I mean, obviously you had a big stressful job. Yeah. Firstly, I'm not going to blame it on the job. I I spent 20 years blaming it on the job. And actually, I'm going to blame it on me. There's a lot of people with stressful jobs. But it was an unusual job in that there were 
very long and unpredictable hours. You were moving around the country a lot. And so it was it it made it harder to organise your domestic life, particularly when it came to buying and cooking food. So I was always eating things on the run. Bacon butters in the members' tea room in the House of Commons. In the early days, quite a few lunches with journalists or, you know, sort of policy people, uh, although that died off. Parliament changed a little bit uh, in the latter years. And then lots of sort of burgers on the run and pizzas, microwave meals, very little home-prepared food. I didn't have a lot of time for it, nor did I have the organisational inclination. So beer after work, curries, kebabs, pizza deliveries, uh, and then obviously Deliveroo didn't uh, exist when I was uh, w- when I was first elected. But before I got fit, there was Uber Eats, Deliveroo, you know, all those kind of delivery services that basically added to the calories. So a very, very unhealthy and unpredictable lifestyle, really. When you went in to see a doctor originally, you know, officially rather than being diagnosed um, at, at a party, what did they say to you? And in terms of the treatment, and what what did they do in terms of treatment? Well, I'm very, very lucky and privileged that I actually have a GP who's really interested in me. That 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 is has regard for my whole well being. Um, and when I went to see Doctor Nazir. I'd recently changed GP practices because I'd moved in London. So I'd not known him very long. So the first real interaction I had with him was this blood test. And he very gently, uh, but very assertively told me that I had a life-changing condition. I'd got type 2 diabetes that the blood test had shown that. uh, And that there were things I had to do to try and control my blood glucose levels. But really, I wasn't listening to him. I, w- I wasn't listening to him because my world was caving in. I was thinking, I've got this terrible, life-threatening, chronic disease. It, even then, there was a tiny little voice saying, you've brought this on yourself. And so he was sort of telling me the steps I could take and the people he was going to ask me to talk to after this. But I was really involved in a conversation with myself. And he then said he was going to immediately prescribe a drug called metformin, which is a dare I say, an entry-level drug for type 2 diabetics. That's obviously not a scientific term, but it's it's what you get when you're first diagnosed. And that helps you deal a little bit with your blood sugar levels. So he gave me good advice. He got me, you know, to see various people like nutritionists. I was on waiting lists and things, but he immediately got me on metformin, which which did actually make me feel a little bit better after, after a little while. But I was immediately medicalised, and there were no other... You know, he, go, he even suggested things to read. But like a lot of men, I was, I just put myself into a state of denial where I, I wouldn't allow, after a while, I wouldn't want the conversation. I didn't want to think about type 2 diabetes. I didn't want to think I was ill. I didn't want to expend the energy, mental energy, to do what I needed to do to turn my health around. And that was partly because I was poorly anyway. I was kind of like, you know, I've described it as like having a brain frog, mm. fog, which sort of takes up a lot of bandwidth. It's harder to sort of make conclusive decisions and sort of focus on issues. So what became the catalyst for change? Because, of course, you didn't want to do anything straight away, as lots of us don't when we're hit with a big piece of information. But something changed in you, which is why you're eight stone lighter today. Yeah, I, I eventually... 
a tiny voice became a very loud voice. And it was a voice saying, you are going to die if you don't sort this out. And I'd read biographies and, you know, long form articles about great Labour leaders. I mean, my hero is John Smith, often described as the greatest Labour Prime Minister we never had. And we never had him because he died sadly very young in his mid fifties. And I hit 50 and, you know, I thought he had a very stressful job, but I've got a more stressful time in the, in the job I'm doing than he had. And I'm probably heavier than he was. Uh, so this voice grew. And then I've got two young kids. They're 14 and 11 now who I love dearly. And I didn't, I wanted to live for them. I wanted to live for them. And so eventually I got myself sorted out, but it took quite a few years and it took a lot of prevarication and thought and inner conversation and, you, you know, sort of lonely inner conversations before I finally committed to it. You say in the book, obviously, that it's not a blueprint for other dieters, but you do describe in detail what you, you do. And I mean, it isn't necessarily what we're advised to do in terms of a diet. And yet, obviously, it has worked really well for you. Yeah, the reason I say it in the book is essentially I think this is about how you find your own you find your own mental approach to sorting your to changing your life dramatically for the good forever. And and so you have to find your own route to that. There's no blueprint for that. It, it's just that's the hardest thing to press the metal, mental button to on. And and what I did was I needed to sort of I needed to read and read and read. So it started with a random, not really a random read, but I read Dr. Michael Mosley's book and I read it on a Kindle. I borrowed a Kindle when I was away in Spain for a few days. And I was so intrigued by what he had to say that I read, I then got hold of the footnotes and I read the research papers and it started me on a sort of serendipitous journey that sort of took me into biohacking and the the war of nutritional scientist but that was waging over many continents and what i what i concluded was skeptics about the current policy by public health england that the guidelines that the one size fits all guidelines on what you should put on your plate the thing they call the eat well plate i decided to ignore that advice and significantly reduce starchy carbs in my diet and increase my intake of fat to accommodate for that I'd already begun to cut down on refined sugar. And then when I committed completely, I eliminated all refined sugar and was very pleasantly surprised that I started to get well very, very quickly. And other than a sense of slight withdrawal from sugar that was uncomfortable and unpleasant, I, I got better really quickly. Uh, uh, and I think I probably got my fasting blood sugars into the average range after about six weeks, two months. But I, I wasn't prepared to sort of confirm that until I those I had a year's worth of readings. But I got better very, very quickly. Obviously, in the recent years, there's been a lot of talk about sugar and, and perhaps re-looking at it as, as the real problem in our diet. And the one thing I'm very aware of, because I gave up sugar a few years ago, I unfortunately, unlike you, didn't last, but it is in everything. So it's in pasta sauces, anything sort of manufactured, it's there. And you say it's quite good because you end up cooking from sort of scratch if if you do that uh, a bit more. But there is a lot of sugar in places people don't necessarily expect it. Yes. So on refined sugar, 
you get straight into a classic global conglomerate power game with huge influence on legislatures in, in most of the Western world countries. So when I interviewed or met a, a lovely academic called Marianne Nessel, who was actually followed by Coca-Cola, she's an octogenarian nutritional scientist from the East Coast of America. She told me that Coca-Cola had spent $100 million on trying to challenge regulatory change or taxes that affected refined sugar in food. And not unsurprisingly, when you realise that food conglomerates, refined sugar is is it has got many different names and is used in all sorts of different food. But the one thing that I think unites all nutritional scientists now, there are very few that descend from this, is we have far too much refined sugar in our daily diets. And when you've got 40, uh, you know, a, thir- a third of our children leave in primary school who are overweight or obese, and 40% of their sugar intake comes from sugary drinks and pop, then you realise you know, what a challenge it is in public policy terms to try and get that genie back in the bottle. How do we go about changing that, though? I mean, that is the challenge here, and it's an enormous challenge. I've thought very deeply about this, uh, and and like all these things, there's no one answer, but there is a carrot-and-stick approach. Firstly, the carrots. We, we are very fortunate that we've had a revolution in medical diagnostics in the last five or ten years, and I, I think the the most revolutionary of all those devices is the continuous glucose monitor this is the little patch that Theresa may had one and right now you know 10 years ago diabetics to test their blood glucose levels would have to do a little pin prick on their finger and put a drop of blood on a test strip to see what their levels were the the monitor sits on your arm and gives you real-time spikes and drops in uh, your blood sugar uh, and so that you can see that visually on your phone or device what the response to your body is when you put things in yourself. And I remember very vividly waking up from a night on the beers on a Saturday morning, eating the cold pizza from the night before and guzzling a litre of cold pop, and then about an hour later collapsing on the sofa wanting to sleep. Um, what I what I now realise, that was like a massive sugar spike and a crash. Now, had I got that device on my arm 20 years ago, I, I suspect I would have addressed my health issues earlier. So one of the things I suggest is that we we allow our GPs to prescribe continuous glucose monitors only for a limited period of time, say a month, so that people, when they present to their GP as obese, can, can make an intervention earlier, a lifestyle intervention earlier in their journey. Because it's a pretty clear journey now. You, you know, you, you get overweight, you become obese, you get higher blood pressure, you then get hypertension that's so bad that you have to be medicated. You fall in the pre-medic in the pre-diabetic range. Your pancreas breaks and you end up with type two diabetes. And the journey, you know, is even mapped out. There's a timeline. It could be anything from seven to ten years to get to that point. And by the way, after type two diabetes, you're more twice as more likely to suffer cardiovascular disease. And some researchers now even describe dementia as diabetes three because they think it's related to the amount of refined sugar in our bodies. It, it, it's a huge and pressing public health crisis that needs addressing. And we we have to help individuals help themselves. That's one way we do it with the, um, with the carrots. I think with the sticks, re- remember I'm a retired tribal 
politician. But we have very a very great deal to thank George Osborne for in this space because he's the guy that faced down a huge industry lobby to introduce the first sugar levy, which dramatically led uh, dramatically reduced the amount of sugar in a lot of fizzy drink products. People reformulated their product rather than pay the additional tax. Um, I, I think that model it is brilliantly effective and it epidemiologically will save thousands of lives in, in the future. But we could extend that idea. We could extend it to sugary milk drinks. We could uh, use regulation. This week, for example, Lidl, uh, the supermarket chain, has led the retail sector by choosing to remove cartoon characters from its breakfast cereal boxes. And, you know, those of us with kids have seen... You know, when you take them to the supermarket, you've seen them trying to get Tony the tiger off the shelf because they like the look of the, the the fuzzy little tiger. And we know how much sugar there are in Kellogg's Frosties. So there is a there is a real outcome that can be uh, can be done with regulation or even self regulation. Um, so I think the retailers have got to show some leadership on this as well. Um, but it needs political leadership to get us to that place. And the other half of this is fat, which for so long was the enemy, and you have also challenged that in this book. What what have we got wrong there over the last few decades? Well, I mean, this is disputed, and I would say to people listening to me say this, you, you must draw your own conclusions. But I've read so many things on this. The more sinister aspect of it is I think there was a diversionary tactic by the sugar industry in the 60s and 70s to try and whip up concern about the amount of fat in our diets that led to undoubtedly led to an increase in cholesterol because there was evidence to show that refined sugar was doing very bad things to us and they wanted an, a nutritional enemy and so there were there were battles between nutritional scientists those who said that fat was good for us and those who said that sugar was the was the was good for us or not bad for us and so in america there's a guy called ansel keys who um, essentially liberalizes food markets but in in the uk we had a nutritional scientist called john yudkin who wrote a book called pure white and deadly Uh, i remember reading that book he wrote it in 1972 and it was almost visionary what he said sugar would do to us and he said he said no even in 1972 if what we knew about refined sugar now was known when it was first sold as a foodstuff we would have banned it Mm -hmm. Uh, so addictive and so uh, bad for our health was it um so but i mean if you look in any supermarket or any high street, we are surrounded by products with refined sugar in. So I mean, it's very, very hard to wind back from that, I think. And now for a quick break. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. So tell me what your diet looks like now, because I think what might interest people is you're still having bacon and eggs, for example, which some people would think, you know, wasn't what they should be eating for breakfast. But your diet isn't actually, I mean, I thought, oh, this seems actually okay to follow. And it doesn't feel like, um, it doesn't feel like sort of suffering to be on that. Yeah, you know, for me, I, I mean, the thing that happened when I, I mean, when I first decided, committed to cutting out sugar and carbs, I, I followed a very strict ketogenic diet, 
which is a, a, a very measured and very low level of carbohydrates. And first of all, I need to just describe how it felt because by the time I started that diet, I just thought I was a greedy person. I thought I was, I just had a hunger gene that other people didn't have. And I, I'd been hungry every minute of every hour of every day for 25, 30 years. I, I, I thought about food all the time. And actually what I now know that to be is it was sugar craving and I was having three-hour spikes and drops. And so when I stopped taking sugar and, and my kind of insulin levels leveled out, my blood glucose levels came down and I increased the fat intake, I just stopped being hungry. I didn't need to eat all the time or think about eating or subconsciously eat. Things just leveled out and it gave me more bandwidth. And so I eat very nutritiously now. And so, it, But when I was on keto, I would have a cheese omelette or bacon and egg cooked in butter. Or sometimes I'd have a bulletproof coffee, which is a, a sort of blended coffee with butter and a thing called um, MCT oil, mid-chain triglyceride oil, which is a particularly distilled form of coconut oil. All, all this was about trying to stimulate ketosis and to sort of get me through these sugar cravings and the first week i religiously stuck to that regime i lost a pound a day for a week mm. and ended the week a half a stone lighter but actually i ended the week also feeling like a brain fog was lifting from my from inside my head my cognition improved my mental acuity sharpened I, I, even within a week or two I could recall facts and figures more quickly. I just felt sharper. And uh, that could only be nutrition. That couldn't have been the physical exercise because I wasn't uh, doing enough at the time. These days I probably have what you describe as a Mediterranean diet, which is sort of advocated by clinicians like Dr. Asim Malhotra. So I could start in the morning, again, you, you know, with you know bacon or eggs or sometimes I'll just have some a bulletproof coffee again have lots and lots of salad with olive oil avocados fresh fruit i try and get eight or nine pieces of veg veg and salad a day I try, and i try to vary what i eat although at the very heart of my vegetable intake are cauliflowers and broccoli i've eaten more broccoli in a year than most people eat in a lifetime <laughs> and you get to love it and so it's more of a classic, you know, like our grandparents, you know, it's sort of meat and instead of meat and two veg, it's meat and three or four veg in the evening. So it's not onerous. Uh, it, in fact, it's very generous. Uh, and I, I rarely calorie count, although sometimes I do. On the, nu on the nutritional program I do, you can eat things like cheese and a bit of cream and butter. And they even though calories aren't at the heart of it, you can overdo it on the cheese. And I, I have had on this journey times where I've eaten far more cheese than is good for me. So um, I do keep an eye out on calorific inputs, but that's not really the, the heart of what I do. And you came off medication, which for you must have been an extraordinary moment. What did that feel like? And, and, and were you surprised that that was even possible? I, I, I mean... I don't know whether to be more angry with myself or angry at the food industry for getting me in this place. But the honest truth is, even though I was moderately well-informed as a politician, I didn't know you could reverse type 2 diabetes. I, I, had a, I had an idea that something inside you broke and would never work again, and you couldn't mend it. 
And actually what I now know, diabetes is just a spectrum, almost an arbitrary measurement. Type 2 diabetes, not type 1, that, that's very different. But it was like, um, you know, they, they decide at that point your blood glucose level means you're pre-diabetic and at another point on the axis you're diabetic. And you can move across the axis either way. So I now need to control my condition nutritionally. If I, if I went back to taking in sugar, I'd get ill again. But to be able to control it with, with a lifestyle change that is not particularly difficult uh, was like freedom. It was liberation. And because the cognitive gains are as, as important as the physical gains, you, you know, I just feel like a different person. I feel just very happy and at ease with the world, which, which I wasn't for many years. I, I mean, I sometimes think I, got, I became too chilled out for the job I was doing, which might be why I'm now an ex-politician. Um, you're retraining now and in and, and a bid, presumably, to spread this message to others. Are you, when, when you say you're going to be a fitness instructor, I mean, what, what, what does the training entail and what, what will you actually be doing at the end of this? I, I don't know yet. I, 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 the, decision, the decision to leave politics it was only a month or so ago. It came on me very quickly, the decision. I mean, it, I'd obviously been thinking about my life for quite a while. I'd had a tough time in the last couple of years as deputy leader. So I've taken a leap and I don't know where I'm going to land. I, I'd, I'd actually signed up to do the level two gym instructor course before I decided to stand down. I was doing it because I was just very, very interested in the topic. And it evolved at, at, at sort of, you know, some days of training. And I, I did it in a group of 10 of us and they were all younger than me they were more supple than me they were more well informed than me and they'd all done their homework better than I had so I was genuinely bottom of the class which I'm not used to but I loved every minute of it and we had great crack on day two they recognized who I was and <laughs> uh, ripped into me and I loved it. And I've still got to do my assessment. You know, you have to do a portfolio with people you work with. And I need to pass some physiology exams, which are a lot harder than they look. And if I can do that, David Lloyd Jims have offered me currently three test shifts mm. as a level two gym instructor in one of their clubs. And I'm just going to see where it goes. I mean, I don't know whether I'm going to do it forever. I don't know whether this will be an industry I end up in. But I, 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 these two little rules I set myself when I stood down were to try and remain an instrument for good in the world because I've always tried to do that and surround myself with relentlessly positive people, which, which has not been a feature of my recent uh, career or endeavours. But you definitely find them in a gym, right? Well, well in the fitness industry, I, I've barely ever met anyone who isn't, on, who isn't happy. Right? They're, they're highly motivated. They're good people. They've generally got great senses of humour. And they have good crack. And I'm 52 years old. I've had a tough few years. I've had a good career in politics. But I want, I want to have some good crack in my life. And, and I think I could do some interesting things in that sector and do some good in the world as well. Because, I, I mean, I guess I could, if I can use the new experiences I'm about to get to try and pull together type 2 diabetics in the UK... It's 3.4 million of us uh, identified, probably a million others that are undiagnosed or hanging around. You, you know, the research from Newcastle and America suggests that 2 million of those people could reverse their condition 
with nutritional change and a little bit of extra activity in their lives. And that's something worth aiming for, I think. Mm. You know, if two, not just because I, I mean, I'd love two million people to feel as great as I do today because I, I, I genuinely, I'm the happiest I've ever been. But there's actually a national interest in this, in that, you know, type 2 diabetes costs the NHS 10% of its annual budget. We amputate 150 feet and toes a week as a result of type 2 diabetes-related conditions. There's a taxpayer interest in this as well. And, you know, I think I think my experiences in politics, leaving the sort of front line, basically one in a quieter, less partisan life, with a new skill in fitness, there is a potential to do some good at scale there if I do it right. One thing you talk about in the book, and you, you've mentioned it, is you talk about that brain sort of fog clearing. And, you know, you say obviously there's a massive benefit to the NHS here, but do you think also we might be more productive, you know, if if we are eating better? You say also you feel that you become more patient as a result of eating differently. I, I have absolutely no doubt that we could significantly enhance the cognitive firepower of this nation if we if we shifted people's health at scale. And, and actually, we could probably have better decision-making in politics if p- people got their health in good order. Um, now, I'm not going to be preachy because I've been a preachy MP for many years, but there really is a national interest in this. W- when I look at... I, I talk to organisations, some of the business organisations tell me that they think our productivity gap is so great that it could have impacted on the economy more than a no-deal Brexit would have done. There is, a, there is a productivity problem in Britain, and some of it is, is related to health and well-being. And it's worth us spending a little bit of high-order public policy thinking in that space, I think, and doing some partnerships with industry to see whether we can think about this in a more creative way. You've said that you're happy, happier now, and, and you know, obviously you've had a few hard years in politics, but is there anything you miss? I mean, now that we're getting back to the point where you know people are going back to Parliament, is there anything, as you look on now from outside, that you think, I'm really going to miss that? I literally don't miss any of it. <laughs> I, I, I went to bed the day I resigned a little bit drunk, having taken my team out and playing them all my favourite records. And I said to myself, if I wake up tomorrow and I regret this, it'll be the worst day of my life. And I woke up the next day a huge weight had been lifted off my shoulders. The sun was shining and the pages turned. And if I've got one thing to thank Jeremy Corbyn for, it feels like he's helped me lift a 35-year curse. I was absolutely obsessed with politics. I, from from a, being a little boy collecting numbers for Harold Wilson in the February 1974 general election, all I thought about was, you know, campaigning, writing leaflets, how do you get policy change, how do you build support for this, how do you win that position, you know, uh, how do you do that deal with that country, you know, how do I procure that piece of equipment, how, how do I reform this department, all the inner conversations, they were all around the same theme of politics and that voice has been completely extinguished and now I think about what book am I going to read today, how many steps am I going to get in, how am I going to pass this physiology exam, you know, how do we, what do I do with this? And I, it's like the, I'm, it's like I'm starting out again in the world of work. I've no idea what I'm going to be doing in a year's time, but it is an absolute joy to be in such chaos. 
Well, sorry to drag you back to it, but I do have to ask how you felt on December the 13th anyway. You know, once you're a bit out of it, you still must have, have found it a very upsetting day and you've got colleagues losing their jobs. And I felt very anxious for colleagues who didn't have to lose their jobs. I mean, you know, if I thought about it too deeply, I would get more upset. And maybe I'm in a little bit of denial about that. Because the truth is, it, it, there was a very disorganised government, party of government, that were really there for the taking. Now, I mean, I think I think the outcome of that election could have been different, perhaps with a different policy prospectus or, you, you know, all the sort of things you can do to improve your position. And so there were MPs that lost their seats who worked very hard and cared about their constituents who, who didn't have to. But I, I know this sounds selfish. My overwhelming sense was one of relief that I no longer had to try and be part of the team that charted the new path for Labour. And that's why I'm trying and failing in my interviews to not get into who should lead the Labour Party, (laughs) uh, because I admire them all for, they're all going to try and do their Mm. best. I mean, I've obviously got opinions and I come from a particular tradition, but it is a huge responsibility that they've got. I mean, you know, the future of the Labour Party is in their hands and, it, and it, you know, no party has got a God-given right to exist. So I don't envy that team of candidates, but I really feel like, you know, I did my best. I ran out of road. When you run out of road, it's time to take another path. And I, I went without rancour, but without any sense that, you know, I was letting people down because I didn't think there was any more I could do. Did Labour, and I don't mean this on an individual basis, but overall the party machine, did it deserve to lose, do you think? I think the party machine, it always gets blamed. You always blame the machine when party, politicians always blame the machine when their party loses. And the one thing I know about sort of being at a senior level in politics, you can delegate power, but you can never delegate responsibility, no matter how, how much you try. Our party organisation was pretty shoddy, but that's not the only reason we lost. You know, we've we've got quite a weak national executive committee, the people who are tasked collectively weak, the people who are tasked with the corporate governance of our party. It's quite factional and there's there's people that are quite sort of spiteful on that committee rather than thinking sort of how do they sort of bring people together. So I think they let our members down in that, but that's not the real answer. You know, the real answer is people didn't buy into our policy prospectus and i've seen there's been a few attempts to try and do the post-mortem i mean i think the first challenge for the leadership candidates is to explain firstly what their role was in being involved in the last two manifestos and explain why they felt that they could put their names to that manifesto and what was good and bad in it give a proper analysis of why Labour wasn't elected. And then their bigger challenge is to outline a way forward because it's not going to be easy to come back within five years. Uh, you should never say never. And Tony Tony Blair did it between 92 and 97. But he didn't scale have of, quite a, a steeper hill to climb, though, did he? The work had partly been done. Some of it had been done. Yes, some of it had been done. A lot of heavy lifting by Neil Kinnock and others. Although there was a real sense that in the... There was a sort of sense that in 1992, 
there wasn't quite a movement for change in the country. And so it did feel a little bit like 1992 on election day. That, you know, people were not particularly enamoured with the incumbent government, but not sufficiently enthused by the opposition. And you could get to a point next time round, but it's going to be hard. It could be a two-election fight back, depending on the decisions the new leader makes. And then, of course, the, the, the final thing that I think Labour has to get right is, is, is our half million members collectively essentially need to decide whether they, they actually want electoral power or whether they want to be a sort of party of purists and where their individual politics are sort of adhered to without any compromise or pragmatism. And most Labour Party members I meet are very pragmatic, decent people who want to change the world around them. But they were kind of, you know, supplanted by quite vanguardist behaviour in, you know, those little factions like Momentum and stuff who've got a very powerful stranglehold on our machinery. I mean, I think if that continues, there's no way Labour are ever going to win the next election. So the next leader can address the first two challenges, but the third one is on the membership, and that's down to them. Is the problem, I mean, someone expressed this earlier today, that the people, that the person who would be picked by the membership is not the person who's going to beat Boris Johnson, as we assume it will be in 2025, uh, 2024? I, I, I don't think you can make, I mean, there are easy conclusions you can write in columns, but I, I don't think you can conclude that. I mean, nobody really knows what kind of Prime Minister Boris Johnson is going to be, what kind of direction he's going to take us in, who he's going to put in his core team around him. I mean, th- these things have dramatic impacts on on electoral outcomes. And no one really knows where the economy is going to be in five years' time either. So I, I think the future is very uncertain. And, of course, that does give political opportunity to people if, they, if they've got the right skill set and the right vision for the country. See, um, I, th- I would have thought of it as the other way, is, is you've got to work within the system you have, and so somebody has to know that they've got to win that, and then they've got a different battle on their hands, right? So you, you have to get through hoop one. What, you, get, mean, you mean within the Labour leadership? Yeah, you've got to win the membership, and then you've got a, a different task. Yes, but I, I honestly think you ju- if you end up triangulating or... Mm. you know, playing those games. There's no, we're not in that era. Those leaders or those leadership candidates have have just got to be very honest about what kind of country they want to be in. Where do they want to take their party in that country? And, you know, if that's rejected by the membership, fine. They can go and do something else. But if they try and play it, play it, you know, lefty politics with the members and then sort of tack tag to the centre. I don't think people buy that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they're better off just being honest and losing in the membership or being very honest and showing leadership and being such good leaders that the members go with them, even if they've got personal doubts about the politics of those leaders. And I, I honestly think the, lead, the, the, the candidate that shows proper strong leadership will probably be the one that prospers. Will you announce that you're backing anyone? I mean, given you're out of politics now, will you give your support to anyone? I, I don't know yet. I, I mean, I honestly don't know who I'm, who I would vote for. Um, mm-hmm. I really don't know because they haven't really said much at the moment. I mean, you know, there's a little bit of chatter, but until they actually set out their stall, I, I, I haven't formed a view, I, and I, and I don't think I don't think anyone can yet form a view. But you have worked with some of them. 
Yeah, I've worked with some of them, and you know, but you you cannot in these decisions. Is for you, you particularly if you're sort of a, an elected representative. You know, you should really do everything you can to, you know, not just go for go for someone because they're your friend or your or go against them because you don't get on with them. I mean, I, I heard Angela Rayner today say she's obviously backing Rebecca Long Bailey because she's a flatmate and friend. And I thought, well, you know, that's not exactly. I mean, I used to share a house with Len McCluskey, but I wouldn't vote for him to be leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> so, I mean, you've got to, there's a bigger responsibility than that. You've got to, you've actually got to, you know, you've got to think where, where, where is the national interest? Where is the party interest? It's not, you know, she's my friend. Someday someone should write a sitcom of you and Len McCluskey <laughs> sharing a flat together. He never did the dishes, but he was very good at buttering toast. <laughs> And looking forward, where do you see when you when you look at politics? Do you think there are reasons for optimism? Because it can feel that this year, this year feels like it could be very depressing for a lot of people. You, you, you've got to be an optimist in life, and and I, I generally am an optimist. And good people with good character and good hearts, eventually they prosper. And also, I've got a slightly more left field reason to be optimistic because I'm a devotee of the technologist and computer scientist Ray Kurzweil who, who wrote this book The Singularity is Near where he essentially says when we reach a point where technology fuses with human biology humanity will change beyond any uh, beyond our imagination and what he essentially means by that is when they reduce the iPhone to such a miniature level that they can put it in your brain and include the speed of your cognition of your brain we're going to become different creatures and darwinism will end we'll decide what our biological fates are we'll be able to terraform the earth and create our own weather artificial intelligence will radiate within us and out of us and he says the knowledge wisdom will be beamed around the universe and we will become the knowledge universe it's a pretty big concept. Uh, it could also, to me, go the other way, <laughs> could it not? Well, it could we do. could lose control of these things. We, well, we e- either way, it's probably going to something's going to happen that's big, and it'd be uh, a lot bigger than Brexit. Well, Kurzweil, Kurzweil <laughs> says it's likely to happen in twenty thirty because he's got this one theory: the exponential, techno- the, the exponential technological curve where he says we've always thought that at growth that the technological advance was linear because but that's because for the last 2000 years we've been at the base of the curve and we're now on the the bendy bit of the um, exponential growth curve and very soon change will happen so quickly it will almost seem like it's changing in the blink of an eyelid and when you're devoted to someone like Kurzweil who's a visionary in my view it does put brexit and day-to-day politics in huge perspective to the point where it's barely worth worrying about we should just think about our relationship with nature and who we are as human beings and what humanity can do with the big picture and i'm also grateful to ray kurzweil for allowing me to divorce myself from my previous life as as a street fighting day-to-day politician because i realize it's all vaguely pointless now (laughs) on that note thank you very much thank you